Thank you, Tim and Terry. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, our hearts are drawn to the book of John in chapter 3, even as we've been studying your gospel, that you gave out of a heart that was filled with love for a fallen world, that we might find salvation in the person and work of Christ, that we might live out his purpose here on this earth. I pray we, be, we would be reminded of that truth this morning. As we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out at this time. If you're visiting with us and you have a child that age, we have a children's church we make available for children first through third grade. You can pick them up right after the service, right out these back doors here. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Each week I pray in my sermon preparation that God would give illustrations that would help, help us understand the truth that he has for us in the text. In the fall, it's interesting that it seems like all the illustrations that come to mind revolve around deer hunting or football, and I'm not sure why, but, uh, but uh, I'd like to give you a, just an illustration of something that we're going to see in the text this morning. Last year, I had the opportunity to attend the Clemson-Notre Dame game in person. Many of you in this room are Notre Dame fans. I am probably one of the only Clemson fans being born and raised in Clemson, South Carolina. Had the opportunity to attend that game. Heartbreaking for me, a rejoicing time for you last year. And uh, this year, I had plans to attend the game down in Clemson, and I didn't. And oh, how the tides turned. And Clemson won and Notre Dame lost this year, and I wasn't there. And of course, my dad's response in a phone call to me was, glad you weren't there, son. You're probably the reason we lost last year, right? As only a loving father would say. Superstition. It's interesting. As Christians, we wouldn't necessarily claim to be superstitious people, yet there's a part of superstition in all of us, especially when it comes to things like sports. I was big into sports in high school. My dad tells the story of playing football in high school and having a person on his football team who never washed his uniform for the entire football season for good luck. He was a defensive lineman, and so he wanted to be as mean and as nasty as possible, and so he would wear the same uniform covered in sweat and blood and mud, and by the end of the season, he said you could stand it up on its own in the locker. Superstition. Some of you won't watch your team play if you're not sitting in your chair with the lights a certain way, wearing a certain shirt, and with a certain drink in your hand. It's just like, listen, this is what we do every game, and if I do it just right, then my team's going to win. We have all sorts of superstitions that we have in our lives. Some of you stay away from the number 13, Lufthansa, the airline, a flu uh, them on a, on a mission trip one time, doesn't have a 13th row on their airplanes. They go straight from 12 to 14. Why? Because they are superstitious about the number 13. Some of you don't like black cats or walking under ladders. I think that's just a general safety thing, isn't it? You, don't, you never walk under a ladder, 
right? Or breaking mirrors, or you could go on and on and on. Something happens in your life and you go, oh no, it's going to be a bad weekend. It's going to be a bad day because this happened. Superstition. You know, there are some people who are superstitious in their nature, and we'll talk about a little bit later on this morning. It's very dangerous when we bring that into our Christian lives. Very, very, very dangerous. Some people are enslaved by superstition. That's what we actually see this morning in our passage. What we see in our passage this morning is a man and a culture enslaved by superstitious legalism in which Jesus comes and offers freedom. He offers freedom. We're shifting into the, as we look at the book of John, into pericopes or sections, paragraph sections of narrative. I've kind of set a pattern for you. I'm going to continue that pattern. I think it will help you as we look at the organization of my messages, follow along, and that's going to be walking through the passage, understanding what the passage says. Maybe there's some interesting geographical notes or historical notes or textual notes. And then at the end, as we look at the the passage, at the end of the passage, I'm going to draw some observations for you. Applications, implications, call them whatever you want. I'm just going to call them observations each week as we look at the passage and we ask the question, so what? What does that mean for me and what I should believe? And so let's walk through this passage together and then we'll draw some observations at the end. Let's begin by reading. I'm actually going to stop my passage short. I planned on preaching all the way down through verse 17. I'm actually going to group 17 with the next section. And so we'll we'll end reading at verse 16 for my passage this morning. But let's look there together in your Bible. Can we do that together? John chapter 5, begin reading verse 1. And there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Let's stop there. What's the setting of this passage? Jesus attends a feast in Jerusalem. We don't know what feast this is. If John wanted us to know, he would tell us. But it was just a feast. And Jesus was fulfilling the law by attending these feasts that the Old Testament requires. Every time there's a feast to set aside a teaching or a memory of what God has done for the children of Israel in the past, the Bible, the Old Testament, commanded the Jewish people to pause and to celebrate those Feasts. We see those feasts have been fulfilled in the person of Christ. But Jesus living as an Old Testament follower of the law fulfills the law perfectly by attending this feast in Jerusalem. And as Jesus attends this feast, John tells us that he sees or he goes to a place called the Sheep Gate. What is the Sheep Gate? It's a small gate in Jerusalem where They would bring the sheep into the city from the fields that lay around the city. In order to be sacrificed, they would lead them through the sheep gate and they'd bring them in for the sacrifices. And just through that gate, there was a ceremonial ceremonial cleansing pool there called the pool at Bethesda. This pool was also a place where all the invalids, the blind, the lame, the sick, all of those, we could, 
we could refer to them. I know this may be a little bit of an of a overgeneralization, maybe a simplification. We could refer to this today as a homeless encampment. That this was the place where people would gather who had no home, who had different illnesses. But there was actually something very unique about this specific place in Jerusalem. And that is that, that the city of Jerusalem had set this place aside for all of those who were blind, lame, who had illnesses that were seeking to be healed, and they had actually erected, here you see in your text, colonnades, or, or you can think of them as porches, these areas that were covered so that as these men and women and even children lived by this pool, they were sheltered from the sun. They didn't have to bake in the hot sun of the Middle East. And so were these five large shaded portion, uh, porches in this area. And in the middle, there was a shallow pool. Some of you may have thought this to be a, a deep pool or seen pictures or depictions of this area and, and an area where people could get in and swim. The problem is you're dealing with people who are invalids. And so as they immerse in the pool, if it was too deep, they could have a serious problem, right? And so obviously this wasn't a deep pool. It was a shallow pool that was either fed by a spring or it was fed by an upper pool in Jerusalem through a culvert. Some historical notes mention that this water had a reddish tint to it at Bethesda because it was a, a mineral pool f- um, kind of fed by an underground spring. I think that would probably be my opinion as well. And as we see, verse 3, that in these colonnades, on these porches, lay a multitude, lots and lots and lots of people, lime Uh, Sorry, blind, lame, paralyzed. If you can imagine what the setting would be like if you were to take a courtyard area and you were to fill it with those who could not care for themselves year after year after year after year after year. Our text tells us this man had been there 38 years. What that would be like. What it would be. The, the, the sights that would greet you as you entered into that courtyard, the smells of unkept bodies, sickness, decay. This is where Jesus was. It's what he walked into when many of us would probably walk away. There's an interesting textual note here, if you have your Um, your ESV in front of you, you'll notice that it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. Some of your translations in front of you have verse 4 there. There's a textual note that I think it would be good for us to talk about. In order to talk about this textual note, we need to have a little bit of background. It's not the point of the message. If this piques your interest, I would point you uh, back to a message that I preached several years ago called From the Mind of God to the Mind of Man and How We Got Our Scriptures. If you have um, a a translation in front of you that's done from the Texas Receptus with Erasmus back in the 1600s, a version like the King James, you will see that verse 4 is there in your scriptures. 
Erasmus had access to eight manuscripts in the 1600s. Today we have access to some 25,000 manuscripts to be able to compare them with each other. Let me tell you a little bit about what would happen with the transmission of Scripture early on. Obviously they didn't have typewriters or computers or printers, so everything was done by hand. And often, much like we have in our Bibles, scribes, as they would copy Scriptures, would add explanation notes in the margin. Because people had distanced themselves from that culture so much, they'd say, what in the world is this pool? What, why is he waiting for this water to be stirred up? And so we have now ancient manuscripts that show us scribal notes in the margin that ended up being added into text later on with your verse 4 there. So later on, people just said, you know what, that's a good note. Let's just add it straight into the text so it's no longer a marginal note. Obviously, copyright issues back then weren't the same as they are today. And so we have, in verse 4, a textual note that explains culturally what's going on. It's an interesting historical note, but it's not part of the original biblical text. You say, Pastor Joe, should I be worried about that? Absolutely not. Why? Well, because we know what the original said, first of all. And even if we add that into Scripture, it doesn't change anything. If you were to add all of the notes we have like that and everything that we've discovered over the past 2,000 years and all the manuscripts and all the texts, it changes no doctrine, no teaching. It's just explanation things or maybe a word switch. And so it, it doesn't, it doesn't help, it, it doesn't like put fear in our hearts in Scripture at all. It actually does the opposite. The more that we look at these 25,000 manuscripts that we have, the more we are confirmed, not that we needed proof, but the more that we are confirmed that we have a reasonable faith that God has preserved his word. And I did an entire message on that, and after that received um, some feedback from our people that was very encouraging and understanding scripture. And so if you're interested more in that, you can look back. Uh, to that message on our website called From the Mind of God to the Mind of Man as I walk through that in detail. But that note is very interesting because it helps us understand two things. It helps us understand why so many invalids were gathered at the pool, and it also helps us understand the motivation for this man's note to Jesus. As we look at this note, we'll see that there was a false mystical belief that an angel from God would come down and would stir the water in the pool to provide healing. Now maybe you've read this and you've thought that that was actually the case, that an angel would come and would stir the water and people would heal, but that's not at all what's happening here. This is a false mysticism. It's, it's some sort of belief that is superstitious that was anchored in the pool because as the pool was either fed by a spring or with water released from a pool from above, it would cause the water to move. And then superstitiously they would say, oh, the water's moving now, something must be happening. The reason that I believe it was fed by a spring and it was a mineral pool is that no doubt some people had immersed themselves in water and found some sort of healing as mineral water does. And so this superstition arose. If you can just get to the pool, you can be healed. And then not everybody was healed, and so the superstition changed. We've got to be the first one in after the water moves. Or maybe you weren't fast enough. And all these things as we do today. Every time that our superstition doesn't work the way we think it should, there's always an excuse, right? We sit in our chair with our shirt on with the lights just right watching our team, and they lose, and you think, man, you know what, I didn't iron my shirt before the game. That's what it was. You know, we always find an excuse. 
And so there was this superstition that had developed that every time the spring would feed the pool or the water would be released and the water would move. So if you could just get into that pool, you'd find healing. Superstitions of the culture. Friend, let's be careful that we don't let superstitions of our culture affect our faith. There is no such thing as luck or chance. God is sovereign over all. There's no such thing as premonitions or, oh, I just had a feeling this would happen. If I just think about it long enough with the power of positive thinking, I can make something happen. Or this is a sign. Any, any and all of those mystical, superstitious thought processes of our culture entering into, a, in, entering into a Christian, they diminish God. They diminish God's work. And what we have here is we actually have Jesus coming in and laying flat all superstition and saying it's not the pool that heals, it's the power of God. And any, any aspect that the water would have or, or role the water would play in your healing is only because God created it with minerals in it, right? And all healing is by the hand of God. Be very, very careful when we insert any sort of mystical superstition that does not believe we don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and demonic supernatural forces. It means that we need to be careful when we talk about luck, chance, premonitions, power of positive thinking, all of that kind of thing. So with that background, let's look at the invalid in verse 5. One man was there among the many. There were dozens, maybe even hundreds of people there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Think about that. We don't know what his problem was. We don't know if he was, um, you know, if he had some sort of a sickness that made him an invalid. We don't know whether he was paralyzed by an accident or he was born this way. We, we don't know. But we do know that for 38 years, this man had been living, hoping for something that would never take place. In all of these years, he had not given up hope. He had a desire to be healed, but his hope was misplaced. Yet he waited there and waited and waited, not having the ability to get to the water. And so Jesus comes to him in verse 6 and sees him lying there, and knowing that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? It's a legitimate question. Is your desire to be healed? This man is not only sick physically, but he's also sick in his spiritual life. His faith misplaced, hoping that something would happen and it never would. And it's a reminder for us that our hope is only found in Jesus. Amen. So Jesus says in verse 8, something miraculous. The man says, I would love to be healed. I, I, I would love hope, but I don't have that because I can't get to the water in time. And Jesus looks at him 
and supersedes all false mysticism and says, take up your bed and walk. Let me ask you a question. Why this man? Scripture doesn't say that he'd been there the longest. There were probably those who'd been there longer than him. It doesn't say that he was the worst off. It doesn't say that he was the best looking or perhaps the one closest to Jesus. Why did Jesus choose him? And some of you are saying, I know why, because this man was going to be a believer. And Jesus looked at him and realized that he was going to put his faith and trust in Christ. And so he chose him for that reason. And if you think that, you'd be wrong, because this man never becomes a believer. In fact, he turns his back on Jesus and rejects him at the end. Most of those whom Jesus healed were never saved, which means if you buy into a system that says if you believe, you'll be healed, it's a lie. That was not the purpose of Jesus' miracles here. Why did Jesus choose this man? Because of God's compassion and grace. There was nothing about this man that drew Jesus towards him. There was nothing that this man had done in the past, nor would he do in the future that was any good. In an act of undeserved, extravagant love, Jesus chose this man to be healed. We don't know why, other than the fact that it was an act of undeserved, extravagant love. Jesus commands this man to take up his bed and walk, and what happens? Look at verse 9. Those three words are so very important. Look at verse 9. And at once. Because when God speaks, his creative voice works. It is the, the, the word that we would use to describe this is effectual, it takes effect immediately. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. I want you to notice a couple things about this miracle. It was not partial, and it was not gradual. Jesus didn't heal his feet, but not his legs, or his feet and legs, but not his hands. It was a full healing, and it was immediate. Full and complete recovery. The muscles did not need time to exercise. You can imagine someone, an invalid for 38 years, all of a sudden given the ability to walk again. He doesn't have to go through therapy. He doesn't have to relearn walking. It's an immediate miracle. It's a recreation that God creates in him not only the muscles to walk and to carry, but the muscle memory to walk and to carry. That it is an immediate miracle. A man who had been invalid for 38 years, standing up, picking up his mat, and walking away. An incredible sight. But we can't stop here. If we stop in this moment, we misunderstand the passage. Perhaps your mind, like mine this week, is taken back to sitting in Sunday school with a flannel graph. Whatever happened to flannel graphs? Those were awesome, right? And seeing... Jesus coming and the man who was laying down, same man, stood up and hopping away, right? But we can't stop there because if we stop there, we actually miss the entire point. 
The, the entire passage hinges around the last phrase in verse 9. If you have a Bible that you write in or, or if you have a, a Bible journal, you need to highlight or circle this phrase. Now that day was the Sabbath. This is the point. The, the, the healed man never becomes a believer. It wasn't done to strengthen the disciples' faith because the disciples weren't there. It was just Jesus. It was the Sabbath. The key to this whole passage is found in that one phrase. The focus of the miracle is not the faith of the man as it was in the previous section. Remember the, the, um, the, Roman, or the official and his son where the official has faith that said he believed Jesus' words last week and then once he knew that it happened exactly in that moment, he himself believed and it shows a desperation that in order to be forgiven of your sins, in order to find hope in this life and in the next, you have to be desperate because of your sins coming to Christ in order to be your rescuer. This is different. Not the same purpose. It's not focused on his faith because he had no faith in this passage. It's focused on the power of God over religious mysticism and religious tradition. That's what this is all about. Because it happened on the Sabbath. It's not by accident that it was the Sabbath and Jesus walked into this place. Look at the Jewish response in verse 10. So the Jews, remember, every time that John uses, as far as I can tell, every time, there may be a couple exceptions, and we may get to those later, but, but almost every time, if not every time, that John uses the phrase, the Jews, he's not talking about the nation, he's talking specifically about those people who were against Jesus. And so he says, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. It is not lawful. What do they mean by it is not lawful? They mean it is against God's law. And so we need to ask a question, as you should always ask when someone says, the Bible says, your first question should always be, does the Bible actually say? A lot of people say the Bible says, and the Bible doesn't actually say, so we've got to be careful, right? And so they approach this man, and they say, it is against the law for you to do this. And they're not saying against the law like we would think speed limits, right? They're saying against God's law. So what's the first question we should ask? Is it against God's law? And the answer would be no. We'll see this come up later in, in the book of John. In fact, I have a little bit of a, of a, a, a forming hypothesis, you could say. Some of you think that I know everything about the book of John. I, don't, I discover every week just like you. I mean, I've read it a bunch of times, but until we get down in the weeds, we don't really understand in detail what's happening. I have this forming hypothesis that this actually was the crux, the, the center of the reason why they hated Jesus, is that their control over the Jewish nation centered around their creation of external laws to God's word. 
So the Sabbath, and we'll develop this as we see Jesus continually going against the Sabbath, but the, the, the law says that you must cease from your normal work on one day of the week. That's God's plan. That there should be a day in your life where you cease from your normal work. You should do seven days of work in six days or just do six days of work to cease from work so that you turn that day over to God and say, God, I could be working this day, but I'm trusting you not to. And I'm trusting you and reminding myself that I plant, you give the growth, I take a day of rest and relaxation, a day to focus on you as we see that kind of uh, developed more in the epistles and in the New Testament as the New Testament church then says that day is set aside for worship. And Jesus is coming in and he's breaking all of their ceremonial laws without breaking the laws of the Old Testament. And I want to read for you another passage. You can write down in the margin, Mark chapter 2 here. Listen to this. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and they made their, as they made their way, and the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? This is Mark 2 and verse 26. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, listen very carefully. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And here's what Jesus is saying. God created this pattern of six days of work and one day of rest for you. He didn't create you to fulfill some sort of busy law on that seventh day as though he created all this list. And if you don't keep this list just right, you're somehow guilty of breaking God's law. He created this for your own good, for a rest and a reset. Today we would see this as a rest in Christ, a day setting aside of the normal busyness of our week in order to rest and put our minds on Christ. The Sabbath was not made for, uh, excuse me, the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. And, and friends, if I could tell you, for those of you listening, as we trace this through the New Testament, if there is some sort of list that you have for your Sabbath, that if you feel like you don't meet that man-made list, you're wrong before God, your conscience needs to be informed by Scripture. And I'll give you an illustration this way. Back in the 1800s, there were whole groups of young children, whole groups, who were on the streets and local churches had this desire to reach these street kids, reach these orphans, to reach the children in their church. And so in the 1800s, in Orthodox, Bible-believing churches, there were pastors who got together and said, let's start something called, and you know it well, Sunday school. And did you know that in Bible-believing, God-fearing, gospel-preaching churches, there were many conservative, in fact, the majority of conservative pastors at first were against the idea of Sunday school. Totally against it. Why? Well, if you read church history and you read pastors' writings at that time, you'll find that they were against it because they believed that if the church started teaching children the doctrines of the faith, parents would stop. 
and then no longer in the home would they be educated in the faith, but the parents would just turn everything over to the church and, and would delegate all the teaching of the spiritual things of children out of the home to the church. And so they took a stand against Sunday school. And over time, Sunday school became a normal part of the church. And what has happened in our culture today? Exactly what those pastors feared. Does that mean that we need to get rid of Sunday school? No. Sunday school is a great hour for us of adult Bible fellowship and training our children and teaching and giving people in our church opportunities to teach. It means that if there's a Sunday when we don't have Sunday school, that's okay. And it's not as though God frowns on us. For the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Is it a good thing? In my opinion, it is. I don't think there's any reason why parents should not, Christian parents should not be teaching their kids the scriptures at home and can come to Sunday school. But if there's a Sunday, like there will be coming up when we have to renovate this entire side and we don't have rooms available for all the Sunday schools, so for the month of January, we're going to be meeting in the chapel. We'll still have Sunday morning and Sunday evening services, and, and we're going to take a break from our Sunday school hour. Are we in sin? No, because we're still gathering together. It means that we realize some things are non-negotiable in God's Word, and some things are good, better, best scenarios. And, and here in this passage, the Pharisees thought that if they added to God's word, it made them more spiritual, where Jesus steps in and says, actually, it's the opposite. That when you add to the commands of Scripture, it actually detracts from the beauty of what God has given. The Sabbath was made for man to have a day set apart from normal work in order to rest. And this mystical, legalistic tradition had taken that beautiful day that God had created for rest and had added in some, in some instances over a hundred laws that you could and could not do. You can do this, you can't do this, you can do this, you can't do this, you can do this, you can't do this. And in that, they had created a man-made system that bound its people rather than just looking to Scripture and saying, do we really believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? Do we really believe that the Bible is enough and where the Bible stops, it's okay to stop? But where the Bible starts, we need to start. Jesus steps in and heals this man on the Sabbath and their first question, it is not lawful. I wish they would have said, is it lawful? But they didn't. It's not lawful. And what does this man say in verse 11? Look down at your scriptures in verse 11. He answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Don't look at me. It's fear. Because what do legalistic systems produce? They produce fear. I'm scared. I'm not going to do it right. I'm just so scared that if I do it wrong, people are going to look down on me. I'm so scared that I'm going to be ostracized and shunned for something. He's responding in fear. Dear friends, if you're here and you're part of the Catholic Church or you're from the Catholic Church, it is fear that motivates in the Roman Catholic tradition. If you don't, you will. If you don't do this, this will happen to you for X amount of years and you're going to put this burden on your family to pray for you and light candles. If you leave, we'll, produce, we'll pronounce you anathema. 
It's fear that drives these traditions. It's shame that is produced as you work against these legalistic traditions. And friends, can I tell you that fear, we are to fear God with an awesome respect. But being scared and and shame, those are are tools that Satan uses, not God. Those are the, the results of sin in your life. Someone else told me to do that. Don't don't point at me. Please don't get me in trouble. Someone else told me to do that. And so what do they say? Well, who was it? Who told you to do this? Because someone around here is going against the rules. And thus, since I'm a representative from God for you, they're going against God. Who is it? Tell me who it is. And he says, I don't don't know who it is. Jesus had withdrawn. Again, the whole point of the passage is Jesus stepping on the toes of false teachers. Notice the complete blindness of the power of God as it's evidenced. Guys, this man had just been healed. I mean, do you understand that? Like you have a guy who's an invalid, who hasn't walked for 38 years. And now he's standing up, he's got his mat on his shoulder, he walks in, and the first thing somebody asks him is, who told you you could carry that mat? I mean, forget the fact that he was just like lame like five minutes ago. Right? Because these mystical binding systems bring with them a blindness. You know what it looks like? in some circles is, yeah, that person got saved, but they didn't quite get all of it because look at their life. Yeah, they got saved, but they come to church. When they come to church, they don't look and talk like me. Friends, that's a judgmentalism that's being evidenced by false teachers here, not being evidenced by Jesus or set the pattern of what our evidence should of what our lives should look like. Let's not be blind to the power of God because we're so distracted by extra biblical things. Look at verse 14, we'll see Jesus's command again. We're just walking through the passage understanding what's happening here carefully, understanding what's happening. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Two options here. It could be that the man's sickness was a result of his sin, and Jesus, like maybe he had done something wrong which had brought on this sickness. You could say um, somebody was driving while impaired. They had a wreck and they came out of it impaired, like, like physically impaired, that they'll live with for the rest of their life. And you would say that is a result of sinful activity. The Bible says don't be drunk. They, they continued in sin. They put others' lives at risk. They walk out. They're going to remember that the rest of their life because they're missing an arm or they can't walk straight or whatever it is. And you would say that's a result of your sinful choice. It could be that this man's paralysis or his, 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 the reason that he was an invalid was because of some sinful choice. And Jesus is saying, I healed you, don't go and be stupid again or it's going to get worse, okay? That could be what he's saying. There are good men who believe that. I don't believe that's what's happening here, but that is a good option. I believe what's happening here is that we have a snippet 
of a longer conversation that Jesus had with this man. It's not as though Jesus was just walking by. and was like, hey, you're well. Don't sin anymore, right? I think this was a conversation that he and Jesus had. And as we turn to John chapter 20, and we see that John says, listen, I could even write everything that happened. You know, Nicodemus probably sat and had hours of conversations with Jesus, yet we just have the small snippet. And so what I believe is happening here is Jesus is telling him, turn from your sin or the suffering that you had in this present life will be nothing compared to the suffering that you will have in eternity. I think this is a warning here, an eternal warning, that this is a a shorthand version of the gospel that he gave of repentance and faith. Turn from your sin. See that again in John 8. If you don't turn from your sin, your suffering in eternity will be much greater than any suffering that you have experienced on this earth. And rather than turning from his sin, what do we see in verse 15? Look down at your text with me. The man went away, and instead of talking to Jesus, he told the Jews that it was Jesus that healed him. He betrayed Christ. Instead of looking to Jesus and talking to him, he, said, he, he received, I believe he received the message of salvation and turned away from that message because the message of salvation is this. Either you turn from your sins and turn to Jesus and find forgiveness, you will find freedom on this earth from your sins and presence with God for all of eternity, or you remain in your sin, one day we all will die, and when you die in your sin, you will spend eternity in hell, separated from God's mercy and grace for all of eternity. And so I believe that was the message that he gave. And this man decided to stay in his sin and turn his back on Christ. Look at verse 16. First four words. And this was why. This is the reason. Because as we see in the book of Acts, that the Pharisees, the, the Jewish leaders of the time, had this hold on the people of Israel. They had control. And Jesus threatened that control. You see, for a system of manipulation and rules... Someone who comes in with questions is a threat. I met a dear lady this week on Tuesday who gave a beautiful testimony. It was very long in the testimony service. You ever thought, um, you ever taken testimonies in a service and somebody gives a testimony and you kind of sit back and think, okay, We're in this for the long haul when they just start in their life. She began her testimony with, I want to be thankful to God because first I was born. And you think, okay, this is going to be a long one, right? And she went into her testimony. She was a nun in the Catholic Church and just had questions. Questions upon questions, because like Martin Luther, she had a sensitive conscience, so she kept going back with questions, and she was reading her Bible, which is very dangerous if you're a Roman Catholic, and she was reading her Bible, and she had questions, and she was reading her Bible, and she had questions, so they kicked her out. And so she found, back in those days, a a pen pal service for Christians that she signed up for, and she wrote asking questions, and she found a dear Christian who would take the time to write to her and answer her questions, and that dear man became her husband. And so the Lord miraculously saved her. 
Because for a system of control, questions are dangerous. But for friends, a system of freedom, questions are welcome. If you're here and you have questions about the truth, don't stop asking those questions. The Bible will answer your questions. You'll find them answered in the person and work of Christ. These people had such a hold on this man through fear that he was willing to turn his back on Jesus. And the Pharisees had organized this religious system to control people, and anyone who was a threat must be destroyed. Jesus had come to offer freedom because those who come to the Son find freedom indeed. They find freedom from their bondage. And so they knew that he had to be destroyed. Let's look at three brief observations. I'll give them to you briefly, and you can write them down if you want, and I'll explain them. Number one, I'd like you to think of the two words, active obedience. Active obedience. Jesus did not come in as a rebel. He didn't. He didn't come in, for some of you who are more mature in this room, as a 70s bell-bottoms hippie, rebelling against everything, offering free everything to everyone who wants it. He didn't. Jesus came in full obedience to the Father, and thus, as someone who was fully obedient to the Father, stood in contrast to false teachers. Some want to see Jesus coming in as this rebel. No, 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 no. Jesus came in, and the phrase is, he came in with his active obedience. He fully obeyed the law in every respect. That's why our text begins with the truth that he went down to Jerusalem to observe the feast. Yet he stood in contrast to this pharisaical system that the Jews had set up to control people out of fear. Why is it so important that Jesus lived in active obedience, friends? Because God requires perfection. God doesn't require you to be good. God requires you to be perfect. And it's so important that Jesus lived in his active obedience, meaning his full perfection to every point of the law, so that he could stand in your place and you could receive that righteousness by faith. If it were not for the active obedience of Christ, you would have no hope in all of eternity. It's not just his sacrificial death, friends. It's his perfect life that gives you righteousness. So when you see Jesus in the Gospels, don't view him as this out-of-control rebel, but as someone who is obeying the Father in every respect, yet standing at odds with the culture because of his active obedience. The second observation I'd like to make is undeserved compassion. Active obedience, undeserved compassion. You see, as Jesus walked willingly into that courtyard, he once again stood in contrast to the fake compassion of the Jewish leadership. You see, they didn't see the miracle committed, the miracle uh, completed. Why? Because they weren't there. 
Because in order to be there, you had to wade into the dirty, filthy, smelly, any other word you want to put into that genre of descriptors, that's what was in this courtyard. And Jesus was right in the middle. Have you ever looked at another Christian who's in the middle of someone else's problem and judged them for it? Have you ever looked at another Christian who was wading into problems and looked and said, I can't believe that they would do that or they would talk to them. Friends, if that's been your opinion, then you need to put yourself with the Pharisees. For Jesus walks right in the middle and with compassion looks on and undeservedly heals this man. The third observation, enslaving superstition. Enslaving superstition. Extra-biblical requirements for godliness are enslaving. Friends, listen carefully. If you have a goal outside of what Scripture entails, and you equate that goal with godliness, whatever it would be, and it's not prescribed by Scripture, then what you are doing is you are enslaving your heart and you are enslaving your conscience to something other than the Bible. And the most dangerous thing is for us to view that as actually improving on Christianity. As if somehow I'm more godly than you are because I've come up with five extra rules. But the problem is there's always Johnny down the street and he's come up with seven. So now what do I need to do? I need to come up with ten. And it never stops. It's enslaving. And so let's see the sufficiency of Scripture in fulfilling the purpose of Christ. Adding more to what God has given us does not result in a more godly person or a more godly outlook on life. It simply results in those who put themselves in the place of Christ. Adding to Scripture, so may we be dedicated to the revelation of God, working out the compassion of Christ in a world that needs it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this text that's so clear as we seek to rightly understand and apply your word to our heart. May we take measurable actions of love by not isolating ourselves from the world around us, but by wading into the world, not being of the world, would you keep us from the evil one. But with the compassion of Christ on our hearts, may we be motivated to share that compassion with others. May we be thankful for the, for the undeserved kindness of your love in sending Christ for us. And may we be committed to your word. Above all, that our lives may reflect your truth. 